Um, let's let's just start off with a question that I will pose to you this morning, and we'll just we'll just go straight for the heart. Just jump in. What is the essence of the Christian life? How would you answer that question? Not necessarily how does one become a Christian, although that's certainly an important question. But for the Christian, what is the essence of the Christian life? And there's uh, there's probably multiple ways to answer this, so it's okay to you know throw some some answers out there. If you could if you could put it in a sentence or two, how would you answer that question? Any takers? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Nothing wrong with that answer. Nothing wrong with that one. Any other thoughts? Maybe it's not a full formulated thought, but maybe some pieces or how, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. That's really good. So if we take actually those two answers and kind of put them together, I think we're getting uh, close to maybe how Jesus answers the question. Um, if you turn in your Bibles to John 17, 3, we have the high priestly prayer. So this is Jesus shortly before he goes to the cross and he's praying out loud. His disciples are in earshot and can hear him pray. If you're, if you're in need of a life verse, this wouldn't be a bad one, by the way. John 17, 3. So Jesus answers this question of what is eternal life? Or what, is, what does it mean to really live, right? And John 17, 3 reads, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So with, with the disciples in earshot, Jesus says, and this is eternal life. So according to Jesus in John 17, 3, what is eternal life? What is the life that keeps giving life consist of? Yeah, knowing God and specifically in Jesus' and the one whom he has sent, which is Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind. So thinking of the, what is the essence of the Christian life, um, you know, eternal life is not just about length of years, right? But it's about this life that we were created for. And Jesus says that, that he defines eternal life as knowing God and Jesus Christ. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is all kind of an introduction, not just for today, but really, as I mentioned, the last four weeks of this course is looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this is, this is an applicable introduction really to, to all these or these next four weeks. So look at 2 Corinthians 4, picking up in verse 4. Everybody there? Morning, gentlemen. In their case, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, so in their case, meaning unbelievers, 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here in 2 Corinthians 4, the apostle is describing for us what we might refer to as regeneration, okay? So your regeneration, if you're a believer, every Christian's regeneration, Paul's contrasting here the difference between the unbeliever and the believer, right? So according to verse 4, what are unbelievers blinded to specifically? What can they simply cannot see? Okay. So, yeah, so that phrase, the image of the gospel, and then, or Paul would add on, of the glory of Christ as a kind of a descriptor there. Good. And then in verse 5, what does Paul, when he says we there, he's, talk, you know, he's talking like as, as a Christian missionary, what does Paul proclaim? Okay, good. So we've got John 17, 3, knowing, or eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ as Lord in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we have unbelievers are blinded to the glory of Christ. Paul sees his task as a missionary to proclaim this Christ as Lord. And then verse, according, this one's a little bit more abstract maybe, but according to verse 6, when does an unbeliever become a believer? Or what happens to the unbelieving person that takes them from death to life? Yeah, so Paul says that when, when an unbeliever sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he goes from unconverted to converted, right? So for Paul, the Christian life begins when you look upon the face of Jesus, primarily as we see him in the portrait that Scripture paints for us, and you are no longer ambivalent. You're no longer ho-hum, you're no longer nonplussed, you're no longer disinterested in this person, right? So at conversion, a blind person is given spiritual eyes to see Jesus as he is. And when those eyes are opened, when the heart is enlightened, it perceives Christ in all his glory, right? You look upon the face of Jesus and you see the glory of God uh, in that face. And to that person, Christ becomes compellingly beautiful, right? So what is the, this, what is the glory of God? Right? This is kind of one of those words that maybe is so familiar, like we talk about glorifying God and God's glory, and we want to live for the glory of God. But what is the glory of God? I mean, what, it, what, what does that mean? I think that's helpful in understanding what we see in the face of Jesus Christ here. Say again, Sean. Yeah. So the glory of God is, is Christ himself, yeah. Right. Yeah. 
person to pray. Yeah. I mean, that is the testimony of Scripture. What about that? just that word glory, though? Anybody want to attempt to define glory? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so glory denotes prestige or high acclaim. Yeah. Wait. So the, the, the literal, the Hebrew word kabod literally has this connotation of weightiness, right? Or we might say gravitas. So for the unbeliever, at some point, if they're going to become a believer, they're going to look at Christ in the pages of Scripture, and they're going to see the weightiness, the import, the gravitas that this person right, demands, that this person uh, represents. So the Christian life begins with looking unto Jesus and is lived from that day forward as a continual reorienting of our gaze from the distractions of sin and those things that so easily entangle us. That's going to be today's sermon passage, by the way. So we look from those things back to the face of Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let us with endurance run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So we run the race, right? A marathon, not a sprint, with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So you might say, if someone asks, what is the essence of the Christian life? Right? Hebrews 12.2 wouldn't be a bad place to answer that question. It's a looking unto Jesus, right? And not a casual glance, but our eyes firmly fixed on the person of Christ. As Sean pointed out, in Christ we see the glory of God. So that really brings us to the purpose of our lesson today. This is not primarily academic to consider the person of Christ. It's not primarily an intellectual exercise. We want to consider Jesus this morning. We want to know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We want to look upon him with the eyes of our hearts and see him as glorious. We want to look and keep looking to Jesus as we run this race towards heaven. Now, someone at this point may say, isn't the whole of the Christian life to love God above all else? And the answer is, of course, yes and amen. But how can you love someone you don't know? Or to put it in the positive, if you can see Jesus as he is, you can't help but love him. So that's what we're aiming to do today and over the next three weeks, to consider the person of Christ in his deity, is what we're going to look at today, and then next week in his humanity. And then in the last two weeks, Sam Dawson will lead us in considering Christ in the most glorious work of salvation. Okay, So let's look at Scripture this morning. First, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit's help uh, for us as we look upon Jesus. So let's just pray. Oh God, we pray that you would dim the lights on the distractions in our hearts, and in our minds this morning, and that you would turn up the floodlights on the face of Jesus Christ, that we may see him as our glorious God. All right, so, if we're going to talk about the person of Christ, we're going to need a guide wire. Anybody read Into Thin Air? The book about the team that that went up to Everest. Sean's not in it. It was popular back when you and I were in college. These guys are a little bit young for it. It's good. It's, I mean, it's a true story, this nonfiction account. Um, so I don't really know anything about mountaineering or whatever, but 
you know, in this, in this book, if you're going to set out to climb Everest, right, the Earth's highest peak, um, and you're going to set out with a Sherpa and an oxygen tank, you better have a, a guide wire in place because blizzards are going to come, you're going to lose visibility, and you're going to have to hold on to something, right? So the guide wire is this rope that was set by previous ascenders, and it essentially keeps you on the right path. And so we're going we're gonna to grab a hold of a guide wire this morning as we look into the deity of Jesus. Um, for since the incarnation, Jesus Christ has been both fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So we'll come back more to the second half of this statement next week as we consider his humanity. And some questions are going to naturally arise. And, you know, that's okay because, you know, along with the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation is, is mysterious, but it's one that Scripture and both the universal church affirm. But if you, you may even want to jot this down on your notes. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So this is known in formal theology as the hypostatic, anybody know the second word? Union. Hypostatic is just really referring to like the substance or personhood of something, right? So you had this union of, of two substances, of two natures in Christ. Um, with neither one being diminished, right? So some have said that the incarnation is addition, not subtraction. So God taking on the flesh of a man. So that, this can kind of help us when we start thinking, when we start asking some of these questions of, well, what is it? If, God, if Jesus was fully man and he was tempted by sin or he died or whatever, like we can't let go of this, right? Like fully God, fully man, right? Um, so you, you may be tempted to think of Jesus as God and, and deny some aspects of his humanity, grab a hold of hypostatic union. Or when you're tempted to emphasize Jesus' humanity over and against his, de- his deity, grab a hold of this hypostatic union. I don't care that you remember the term. Maybe at your family Christmas dinner, you know, this, this year you can bring it up and see how much traction it gets. But it's the concept that's important, right? So this, this will be our focus this morning. Jesus Christ is fully God. So the teaching from both the Old and New Testament concerning the deity of Christ is overwhelming. And if you submit to the authority of Scripture, which I hope you do so, and Sam gave us good reasons to do so in the first two weeks of this class, you simply cannot miss the fact that the Jesus of the Bible is God in the flesh. Okay? So before we kind of dive into some of the scriptural texts this morning, any, any questions or comments at this point? Okay, so we'll start with the Old Testament, the deity of Christ in the Old Testament. Unless you think that the Old Testament has nothing to say about Jesus, consider Jesus' own teaching to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, right, after his resurrection. This is Luke twenty four forty four. He, Jesus, said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, essentially the Old Testament, according to Jesus, is about Jesus. And we see prophecies concerning his coming and his triumphant reign, and we learn of how he worked for the salvation of his people from the beginning. That's just the Old Testament, okay? So what are some of the specific things that we see in the Old Testament concerning the deity of Christ? 
Well, first off, we can talk about Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. So if you want to turn over to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, we have this glorious description, right, of the heavenly throne room. And at the center of this scene is the Lord, the Ancient of Days, who is sitting upon his throne. And then a few verses later, Daniel describes another vision with another figure who is called the Son of Man. So you pick up in verse 13 of chapter 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what are some of the descriptors here in Daniel 7 regarding the Son of Man? What is said of him? Just throw something out. You don't have to get them all. Okay, good. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What else? Yeah, kind of an eternal reign. Okay, so those are those are divine things there, right? Worship of all people and eternal dominion. So, you know, it brings up the question: uh, Is who is this Son of Man? Well, if you flip over, you don't necessarily have to do this, but if you flip over to Matthew twenty-five you have the words of Jesus picking up on this theme. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will set on his glorious throne. That's Matthew 25, 31. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep, the sheep from the goats. So you can hear in Jesus's words, allusions to the, the passage in Daniel 7 that we just read. And as a matter of fact, Jesus repeatedly and conspicuously uses the title Son of Man for himself, even more so than he refers to himself as the Son of God. So when you read Jesus referring to himself as Son of Man, you think Daniel 7, right? Okay, the next next thing to consider is how the Old Testament builds expectation that a son of David, right, is coming who will reign on David's throne forever. We see this first in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 13, where God promises the following to King David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then furthermore, the highly anticipated son of David begins to be described in terms that are unmistakably divine. So we have in Psalm 2, 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the son of David is also the son of God, right? Now that could simply mean that the king represents God like a son, but other passages suggest uh, that it means even more. For example, Psalm 72, and these are all, should all be listed in your handout, so you can refer back to these later. We can't read them all this morning, but Psalm 72 depicts foreign kings bowing down before this king and people from all nations blessing his name. And then Psalm 45, 6, and 7 gets even more explicit. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, kind of strange language there, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So thus we see the king is referred to as God. And just to be super clear, Hebrews 1, 8, teaches us that that passage in Psalm 45 is about Jesus. Anybody familiar with Handel's Messiah? Yeah? 
Excellent. Yeah. If you're not, good time to get familiar with it. But if you are familiar with it, you know, you have Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So who is the king? A royal son of David who is also the almighty God. And in that passage, he's referred to as the everlasting father, not in the sense that he is God the father, but rather that he is a king who rules benevolently like a loving father. And this royal figure is Jesus Christ. So most of us know that that when we refer to Jesus as Christ, that's, you know, the jokes, that's not his last name, right? But it's rather a title, which means anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one or the Messiah. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 1, 2 through 3, that the gospel is a message about God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have this kind of gradual unfurling, this rising crescendo of expectation building from the Old Testament and then bursting onto the scene in full color in the New Testament, right? And there's other references for the sake of time. Those are the ones that we've chosen this morning. So let's look at six ways that the New Testament affirms the deity of Jesus. And those should be listed in your handout here with some fill-in-the-blanks for those of you that get excited about those things. First off, Jesus Christ is called God and Lord. And you have the references there, Matthew 1, Luke 2, Romans 9, Titus 2, John 1, as Sean referenced earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or Romans 9, 5, which calls him Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And Titus 2, 13 calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's many instances in the New Testament where the words used for God, Theos and Lord, Kyrios, which in the Greek translation um, of the Old Testament are applied directly to Jesus. Perhaps one of the most staggering examples is Philippians 2. So if you want to turn over to Philippians 2. So kind of your big Christological passages in the New Testament, and you'll see these over and over again. Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. If you're talking with someone, a skeptic or an unbeliever, and they're questioning the deity of Jesus, those would be passages that you could go to. So in Philippians 2, verse 11, kind of at the end of that section, Paul says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know what Paul's referencing in that passage? I didn't either until I did, prepared this study. It's really, it's like the more you study Scripture, you see like the New Testament authors are picking up Old Testament passages all the time, right? There's very little, like, just there's really nothing new. They're just picking up and kind of, you know, explaining these promises. But Paul is quoting Isaiah 45, 23, nearly word for word. And in Isaiah 45, 23, the one to whom every knee bows and every tongue swears allegiance to in Isaiah 45 is Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel. So for Paul's readers who would have been steeped in the language of the Old Testament, Philippians 2 could not be any clearer. Paul is saying Jesus is Yahweh, right? 
So the second thing with regards to the, de- the teaching of the deity of uh, Jesus in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ himself claimed to be God, right? It wasn't just something that others said about him. Jesus claimed to be God. So we have probably the most uh, explicit claim or maybe most familiar claim that Jesus makes of himself in John eight fifty eight. So Jesus encounters uh, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, and says this, before Abraham was what? I am. So if you go back uh, to Exodus 3, right, where God calls out to Moses from the burning bush, and God identifies himself to Moses as what? I am who I am. So when God identified himself to Moses as I am who I am, he was saying, I alone possess the power of existence. We thought about the aseity of God, in the, you know, in the attributes of God with Sam Connect earlier in this class. Uh, in Exodus 3 is God saying, I alone possess the power of existence. It is not, my existence is not contingent on anyone or anything other than myself. And then here in John 8, Jesus takes up this mantle for himself. So Jesus is saying, before Abraham was born, there I was, Yahweh, the self-existent God. And just in case you think we might be putting words into Jesus' mouth, we know by the Pharisees' response recorded there in John 8 that they understood Jesus in the exact same way. How do we know that? What did the Pharisees do in response to Jesus' statement? We're ready to stone him for blasphemy. Furthermore, if you flip over, to, flip over to John 10, 30, we see a similar interaction with the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one, bold statement. And again, the Jewish leaders attempt to stone him. And they give us the reason there, right? They see that it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus claimed for himself to be God. The third uh, point in uh, the New Testament here, just checking our time, is that Jesus Christ is presented as the object of the believer's faith and trust. This is no small thing, right? So we have passages like John 14, 1, where Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, right? Every... Every Jewish person would know that they're supposed to trust in God. So for someone to come along and say, oh, and trust in me, by the way, like that's not a small thing. This is what believers do. They venture all their trust on Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul speaks of the believer's steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then John 17.3 that we referenced at the beginning, eternal life is to know this Jesus Christ whom God has sent. So since the Old Testament consistently teaches us to hope, hope and trust only in God, it follows that Jesus as the object of our hope is indeed divine. Any questions halfway through the New Testament part? Yeah, Sam. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. 
Yeah, he did not rebuke those who attempted to worship him. Yeah, it's great. We'll allude a little bit to that, but that's, yes, that's certainly a good point. Any others? So it's actually our next point, Sam. Jesus Christ is presented as the object of the believer's worship. Matthew 2, right? So this is, you know, this, this is intriguing, right? Because as Sam points out, you know, Judaism was strictly monotheistic, right? But Matthew 2, 10 and 11, when the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. John 5, 23, the father has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Now you may remember from Isaiah 48, 11, God says, my glory I will not give to another. And yet from his birth in Matthew 2 to the heavenly throne in Revelation, Jesus receives worship, glory, and honor. If Jesus is not God, then this worship would be misapplied idolatrous and blasphemous. But since Jesus is God, it is instead appropriate and wonderfully so. Okay, so this leads us to number five. Jesus Christ is described as both being God and performing the very works of God. So again, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the agent of creation, a divine work. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to flip over there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What are some of the divine works that you see in that passage? Okay. Yeah, I didn't read it, but you're right. If we read on. What else? Yeah. Currently, the right, right now, the reason that you do not cease to exist is because, according to Hebrews 1, Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. That next breath that you just took did not have to happen. The sun did not have to stay in its place. The earth did not have to keep orbiting. He is upholding the universe actively by the word of his power. Jesus, the son of God. Yeah, and he was the agent of creation. Flip over to Colossians 1. 
Verse 15, we'll look at this passage. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and in, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what descriptions, what descriptors do we have in this passage that point to the deity of Christ? We'll look at that a little bit more specifically and reference this passage again, but absolutely. Every word of the passage, you could just like reread the passage back to me and make 100% on the, on the pop quiz. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's almost like so obvious no one wants to say. You've heard the like the Sunday school joke of like the teachers in there with the you know first grader and, and is asking the kids, okay, kids, like what's has a bushy tail, gathers nuts in the fall, and lives in a hole in the tree. And the kids look around, and raise their hand, and he says, Jesus. Like no squirrel, right? But like we think, you know, like sometimes the answer is so obvious that we <laughs> think it's got to be more profound. Um, yeah. So anything in the passage, pick something out. You know, he is again the agent of creation. Um, Colossians 1 here says that it was not only, not only did he create it, but he created it for his own sake, right? So that's certainly a reference to his deity. Um, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I mean, that's the incarnation that's referenced there. Um, and then as Kellen pointed out in the Hebrew passage, it's also true of the Colossians passage that he is the one who reconciles to himself all things. So he's not only doing the reconciliation, he's reconciling sinners to himself, right? Okay, so that's point five. Point six, lastly, Jesus Christ is assumed to have been preexistent as the eternal Son of God prior to his incarnation. So you've got a whole list of passages there. Uh, but this is noteworthy because it emphasizes that God the Son has always existed. So it's not that Jesus, a human being, somehow became God, either by his miraculous birth or his marvelous baptism or his sinless life. It's the other way around. God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. So that again, the incarnation is not subtraction, but addition. And we see this in passages like Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Though he was in the form of God, Paul writes, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of man. 
So that phrase emptied himself, just for clarification, does not mean that he gave up his divinity, but rather he emptied himself of the status and privilege of being the prince of heaven. Um, also, 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in these passages and in others, Paul is not making an argument for the preexistence of Christ. He's arguing from the assumption that Christ preexisted before the foundations of the world. That's how foundational this truth is, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. So just kind of a maybe a helpful mnemonic device to kind of remember some of these. You have this in your hand on it. Hands, okay? So Jesus Christ, oh, this comes from the book that we gave out a while ago, putting uh, Christ in his place. We're putting Jesus in his place. Jesus Christ shares the honors due to God, right? Jesus Christ shares the honors due to God. That means he receives the worship that is only due, rightly due to God. Jesus Christ shares the, anybody want to guess on the A? Could be a, could be the number of things, but attributes, yes. He's holy, he's righteous, he's all-powerful, he's pre-existent. Okay, what about the N? Names, yeah. Talked about Lord. We didn't talk about Alpha and Omega, but that's another name of God that's ascribed to Christ. I am that Jesus took up for himself. What about D? certainly true. It's not the D in this mnemonic device. The deeds, yeah. So the works that only God does are attributed to Christ. We looked at those. Creating the world, forgiving sin, raising the dead, others and himself, right? And then the last one, S. This one might be the least obvious yeah, it's getting at that. It's yeah, it's it's that essentially, but it's in this in this one it's a different word, but I would give you half credit for that if it were a test. Do what? It's still yeah, fifty percent doesn't exactly earn the degree, does it? Yeah. So this is seat. So the seat of his throne, essentially, right? But which is exactly getting at the sovereignty. So Jesus Christ shares the seat of God's throne. So hands, just a simple the mnemonic device that, you know, if you can remember those things can help you talk and think through the deity of Christ. Let's pause here. Any questions or comments before we press on? We've got time. We're, we're moving through this well, so we've got time if you want to chase a rabbit or something. A Christological rabbit, I should say. Jeremy. As you were talking about, I was thinking about how there's groups like Seventh-day Adventists who clearly deny Christ's identity. Yeah. Are there more subtle ways that we 
Good question. It's a good question. Yeah. problematic yeah yeah that certainly would be, it could be at the at its you know root a denial of the deity of christ it, what do y'all think anybody else think jeremy's question yeah Okay. Yeah. How would you answer your own question? You have anything that comes to mind? Yeah, yeah. So I think one of one of the things that comes to mind is that passage in Colossians where it says he is um, that in everything he might be preeminent. So functionally, any time that we elevate something, love something more than Jesus, we're denying, you know, his deity because only Christ deserves to be preeminent in our lives. Um, and that can obviously work its out in a myriad of ways. It's a good question. All right, printed in your handout, you have the Chalcedonian definition. So you might imagine the question of how Jesus has both a divine nature and a human nature in one person, that hypostatic union, has led to considerable thought uh, among Christians for thousands of years. And we believe this truth because it is evident in the teaching of Scripture, as we've just seen. Um, and you know, next week we're going to consider the, the humanity of Jesus, but right now, having considered his deity, it can be helpful to look at kind of this key historical statement about the divine and human natures of Christ. So the Chalcedonian definition of 451 AD, printed out there in your handout. So Bible-believing Christians agree on this statement because they recognized that the person of Christ is a critical doctrine. Without a proper understanding of the nature of Jesus, you do not have a gospel, right? So this statement is a good summary of the Bible's teaching. Um, There's nothing new in it. It's It's pulling on the teachings of Scripture, and that's why it served the church well for these 1,500 years. So in your your printed handout, I've emboldened the statements that have to do with Christ's divine nature and then italicized those uh, statements on his human nature. So you may look at those. We'll just kind of read the first half of this and if you have any questions about it. Uh, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. That perfect means complete. So completely God or fully God and fully man. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. Consubstantial with the Father. Anybody want to tackle that one? 
Same substance. Consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things uh, like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. What about that mother of God? What do you make of that? Comfortable with that term? In what sense was Mary the mother of God? If Jesus, her son, was fully God and fully man, then she was the mother of God, right? I mean, in the most, like, in the basic sense of it, yeah. Mary, did you know? <laughs> when you kissed the face, what, is that? what does it say? Somebody, come on, you all know it, don't act like when you When you kiss the face of your baby boy, you kiss the face of God. I mean, it's not my favorite Christmas song, but on that part, they, they get the hypostatic union, right? You could re- we won't read the rest of this definition, but it goes on and on. You, but you see this, you know, highlighting both the nature, the nature of God, the nature of man, and this one person, Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a historical confession expert by any means, so someone in this room, probably someone in this room knows more than I do, and so feel free to add on. But the, the, the creeds and confessions primarily arise out of um, heretical teachings that were cropping up. So, you know, when you have someone in the church universal um, teaching that Jesus was not fully God um, or maybe denying his humanity, right, then the leaders of the church, what we would refer to as the church fathers at the time, said, you know what? We better, we better get clear on this topic, right? And so they've done the, you know, the heavy lifting for us, so to speak, um, in addressing in this specific uh, definition, you know, Christology or the person of Christ. Anybody have more to offer on this, this creed? Yeah. Praise God for our Christian forefathers. We can, as it said, stand on their shoulders and see what we see because of their their faithfulness. Uh, It would not be in English. Um, Anybody want to take a stab at Greek? Yeah. It's Greek to all of us. (laughs) Even in English, it can be Greek. Yeah. So yeah, just a couple, you know, a couple reasons for bringing up this creed. One, as I mentioned, is you know there should be a heart of gratitude for the just the faithful attention to detail of the church fathers that has served the universal church well. 
it certainly hasn't prevented every heresy concerning the person of Christ, but kind of like our guide wire analogy uh, earlier, it's kept many Christians tethered to the biblical truth concerning Christology. And as you can see, you know, there was not this attempt for them. They were not attempting on their own to come up with this novel definition of Christ. Like they were saying, what does the Bible teach about the person of Christ um, as they, you know, as they laid out that, that definition. So, um, and as we said earlier, our, you know, our goal, you know, John 17, 17 3, to know, to know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent is, is to, you know, implicit in understanding the person of Christ for when we understand, understand him rightly, it leads us to joy and confidence and worship. Okay. So we'll look at, for the last uh, little bit of our time here, let's look at uh, three reasons that the deity of Christ matters. Okay. So first off, the deity of Christ matters for revelation. We read Hebrews 1, 1 early, earlier. Uh, long ago at many times and, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And those last days is referring to the time that Christ was on earth, not our last days, but the time of, you know, that this was written. So what does this mean? What's the author of Hebrews getting at? How did long ago and at many times God spoke to our fathers, fathers of Israel, the church father, not the church fathers, but the uh, fathers, you know, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me out. Patriarchs, thank you. Um, spoke to our fathers by prophets. So what's, what, what's the meaning of that? God wanted to communicate something about himself or what he expected of his people. He sent a messenger, right? A prophet, right? And certainly Jesus uh, was a prophet in that, in that sense, but he was more than a prophet. In these last days, God took on flesh, right? Um, in order to speak to us, to show us what he is like. And this point cannot be overstated. I think this is, if you grew up in the Christian church, like the, sometimes these things are just, you know, we just assume these doctrines, right? And sometimes it can kind of lose its, its gravitas, as we talked about earlier. Um, but the fact that God took on flesh is something that just cannot be overestimated. We don't have to wonder what God is like. So this is this idea of uh, the deity of Christ matters for revelation. Because God, in his mercy and love for us, and I'll use an old term here, has condescended to us. So John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. It can be hard for us to imagine what God is like. Unfortunately, we have many wrong images and wrong thoughts about God because apart from his grace, we just don't tend to imagine him all that different from ourselves. But that's why I love the statement that the author Michael Reeves says, quote, for all our dreams, our dark and frightened imaginings of God, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, says John 14, 9. God cannot be otherwise, for Christ is the exact representation of his nature. So if you want to know God, look to Jesus. 
Second reason deity of Christ matters is for salvation. The consistent message of the Bible is that no mere man could achieve salvation for himself, yet alone redeem others. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2.9. And God himself achieves this salvation, and he does so in the person of Jesus. So there's this kind of striking phrase in Acts 20.29 where Paul teaches that God bought the church with his own blood. God's blood, the only payment for redemption. The blood of a man, it seems, would not and could not atone for countless millions. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Only the God-man could serve as the perfect mediator between God and man, as 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us. So Jesus did not die simply as an example. He died as a sinless sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. And then his subsequent resurrection, it proves that he is this ultimate high priest. As the writer says, not on the basis of a legal requirement, but by the power of an indestructible life. How, how can you be confident that Jesus is your ultimate high priest even now interceding before, for you? before the Father, because he came back from the dead. So sin-stained rebels like you and me have a sure and steady hope. Our salvation doesn't come through keeping religious rites or attaining nirvana or positive thinking or self-actualization or holding to the five pillars of Islam. All of these options have one thing in common. What do all of those options have one thing in common? Yep. You have to conjure up enough self-discipline, enough obedience, enough righteousness to save yourself. And the bad news of Scripture is you cannot. But the good news is the God-man, Jesus Christ, has stood in your place and even now is mediating on your behalf. He is the guarantee of our redemption, our only hope in life and death. So trust in Christ because he is God and never be disappointed. And then the third reason the deity of Christ matters for the Christian life. One of the biggest misconceptions about salvation by grace is that it's nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Like you pray the prayer, you make the decision, you're a Christian, and then the rest is just, you know, icing on the cake. And while justification certainly secures our rescue from eternal damnation, it secures so much more, namely our sanctification, Right? So we go from being represented by Adam to being united with Christ. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Why? Because Christ died to make it so. Your sanctification will be complete because Jesus, the Son of God, died to make it so. And so Paul writes in Romans 8, Christ dwells in us by his Spirit, which is why we can walk in a way pleasing to God. If Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So take heart. You have the very power of God in you as a Christian to resist temptation and sin. When you were born again, you became a new person and dwelt by the spirit of Jesus. Your identity has been redefined. Christ is yours and you are his. Any questions or comments before our last wrap or conclusion?
So what do we do with this? How, how should we take what we've considered uh, today with us? Well, for one, we, we end where we began. Keep looking unto Jesus. Abide in him. Listen to his words. John Owen, the Puritan writer, said, you love him not because you know him not. So if you find in your heart kind of a coolness or an apathy towards Christ or your, your Christian life seems to be in, you know, stalling, so to speak, go gaze upon the person of Christ. Spend some time looking at, looking at him in Scripture. The other famous John, John Calvin, wrote, Since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. So look to Jesus and adore him. Adore him as your God. We started looking at 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God has shown his light into your hearts. If you are a Christian, this is true of you. This happened to you. He has shown his light into your hearts and given you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So take with you the words of the old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The light of Jesus shines so bright that the competing lights of earthly treasure fades in his presence. So keep looking unto Jesus. Run the race with eyes fixed on him. Though we gaze with clouded eyes now, one day, beloved, one day we will see him as he is, the God-man in all his glory. Beloved, behold your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture that does not leave this doctrine in doubt that Jesus is fully God. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see even more clearly the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.